overture to a symphony. It's the best um, um, analogy I can come up with because it is um, a lot of the, the themes in this little reading are developed more fully by Matthew later on in his gospel. And um, you'll see what I mean um, a bit later on. But the journey starts in the east, and the east is an unspecified generic place. God is stirring. God is doing things. Um, God is acting. But where is all this happening? It is happening outside of Israel, and that's um, one of the key points. Beyond the borders, beyond Matthew's own culture and context, So the first lesson is that the promised Messiah is not just for the people of Israel, um, he is for everyone. And later, of course, Matthew will record um, the instruction of Jesus to us to go and make disciples of all nations. God communicates this uh, wonderful news about the birth of this special king of the Jews, at least in part through the stars in the sky. Hmm. Ma- uh, these magi are stargazers. They are astrologers. And um, they have discerned that this great thing has happened and they go and make plans to pay homage to him. And uh, the creativity of God's communication strategy in this gospel reading is just extraordinary. Um, messages are delivered with incredible variety through stars, through dreams through prophecy, through ancient traditions and through symbolic actions like gift-giving. It seems highly probable, it is certainly the scholarly consensus amongst um, uh, biblical scholars, that the Magi were astrologers who were based um, in Babylon and uh, they were of the the priestly caste of the Zoroastrian religion. And they were highly educated people who had a very influential role within their own um, culture. The word magi is, um, it's not a Greek word or a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word. It is actually a word that derives from the ancient Persian. And um, the English words for magic and magician uh, come from this same word, magi, magic, magician. It's all about sorcery. It's about um, astrology, it's about a a divination, it's about a whole bunch of things that are actually uh, quite antithetical to the Jewish faith. We know a fair bit about the Magi because the Magi have been referenced in scripture before. You may uh, remember the the prophet Daniel, remember him, the minor prophet? He was um, um, there at the time... um, um, Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed and the Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon and Daniel went with them. And um, uh, Daniel spent a lot of time in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and um, he was given a job and one of his jobs was to be the overseers, the overseer of the Magi. <laughs> so, you know, these Magi have been around for a long time and we know um, who they are and where they're from. Now, it's significant because the Magi would have had some basic knowledge of the Jewish people and they would have known about the significance of the birth of the Messiah within Jewish tradition. Um, And it all fits because the Jews were taken into Babylon. There had been this um, 
diaspora community of Jews in Babylon for a very long time. Not everyone returned after the 70 years. A lot of them stayed behind and continued on. So there'd been a continuing exposure in Babylon to um, the Jewish community from um, those who remained. And um, in that way, the Magi would have known something at least about the existence of Jews and about their beliefs. Now, one thing is absolutely clear. Despite all the, the hymns and the traditions and the artworks and the Christmas cards and everything else, they are not kings, okay? They're not the three kings. Um, you could kind of um, understand why the early church might have thought that these magi were kings because um, who else can take off for a few months with their entire um, entourage and um, bring expensive uh, treasure chests of gifts with them? Not everybody, <laughs> Um, but they're not actually kings. The Magi are um, uh, very esteemed religious um, uh, priests who were present at the court um, of the king in Babylon. Now, we might be starting to feel vaguely uncomfortable (laughs) that uh, God uh, seems to be colluding in practices (laughs) that are clearly forbidden for Uh, the people of Israel. Astrology and any form of uh, divination or sorcery um, was and remains forbidden for Jewish people. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, I guess we're sort of vaguely troubled by, you know, what is is God doing, revealing um, this great news about his son in the stars to these uh, astrologers? (laughs) Well, um, we can frame this more positively, I think. God is gracious in stirring up knowledge of um, his Messiah in other people in ways that are meaningful for them. And uh, God is master of all, and things that might be unhelpful or even dangerous for us are completely within God's command. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would a bunch of Zoroastrian priests want to go and pay homage um, to Jesus, especially um, at um, considerable time and cost and inconvenience? Because a trip from um, what was basically Persia um, all the way to Israel by camel would have taken many months. And I think the explanation is that this group of magi recognise that there is an even greater truth at play. And uh, that would have been foreshadowed from the time of Daniel and from the time the Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon. And now that time's arrived and they're keen to explore that within their own fairly adaptive uh, system of belief. Anyway, they discern discern the news of um, the birth of this special king of the Jews uh, in the stars. And they go on a pilgrimage of discovery and in doing so they have an epiphany. An epiphany, that is a direct uh, revelation of the light of um, who God is on the way. And it's a wonderful story because it underscores the fact that the grace of God is for the Gentiles too. But there is so much more to the story than that. Important parts to this story, tell I'm getting excited, important parts to this this story that are often overlooked. Okay. In the narrative, we see that the truth about Jesus is recognised and embraced 
by an educated elite of another religious tradition ahead of the religious leaders of Israel itself. Now, a lot of Matthew's gospel is about conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And these leaders refuse to recognise who Jesus is. And they go on to reject him, to despise him, even to undermine him. So Matthew puts a focus on this theme right from the very beginning of his gospel. So in this wonderful story of the Magi, it's laced, it's dripping with irony. Here, he depicts a group of foreign travellers from a foreign um, uh, religious tradition. Remember, Matthew is writing uh, very much to a Jewish audience. That's his target audience is, is Jews. Um, so it's, he's writing to this Jewish audience depicting a group of foreign travellers from another religious tradition, a religious tr- tradition based on practices that the Jews would regard as highly dubious, if not offensive. And yet these are the very ones who bow down and worship Jesus for who he actually is. <laughs> and he does that ahead of... Um, anyone in, uh, from, of, of the Jewish leaders in um, Israel. The Magi are overwhelmed with transcendent joy at the, at the Christ child. What a contrast to the complete ignorance and hard-heartedness of his own people. Sometimes outsiders see the most clearly. Now, when the Magi get into Jerusalem, they start asking around the place, where is the infant who has been born king of the Jews? Because we want to pay him homage. And Herod hears about this and he reacts with deep anxiety. Well, I suppose that's understandable for Herod. We heard about, a bit about Herod last week in uh, Roy's sermon and we learnt that he's a despot installed by the Romans, basically as a token king. He's completely paranoid and insecure. And hearing the news that the king of the Jews, this special king of the Jews actually, um, would be deeply unsettling for Herod. But here's the thing, not only was Herod frightened, so was all of Jerusalem, according to verse 3. So we need to have a think about that for a minute. I mean, surely the birth of a king is a matter for popular celebration. And the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, the special king of the Jews, um, even more so. That's a reasonable assumption to make. Unless, of course, the people of of Israel were not ready or willing or able to accept um, Jesus for who he was. Anyway, Herod's not going to take any chances. And the Jewish leaders and the scribes are sent for. And Herod demands to know where this promised king is going to be born. And he's told through the time-honoured words of the little prophet Micah that uh, Bethlehem was going to have that honour. And it's what happens next, or I guess more precisely what doesn't happen, that intrigues me. It seems the chief priests and the scribes give this report... um, of the Magi, some level of credibility because along with the rest of Jerusalem, they're quite anxious about it. 
But do these religious experts send anyone to Bethlehem? Do they commence an investigation? No. (laughs) To my mind, the birth of a king is only a joy to people who want to be ruled. And the birth of a Messiah is only a delight to people who are awaiting salvation. Perhaps these religious leaders are more concerned for their own privilege or their own authority than with what God is actually doing in the world. Maybe they don't like the idea of a new arrival who might challenge the social order. They know perfectly well what Herod is like and uh, they make no attempt to do anything. They leave the news of the supposed Messiah in Herod's very dangerous hands. What does that say about their own faith? The Magi are dispatched after a secret meeting with Herod and they continue looking for the child. They're aided once again by the guiding star. Wonderful metaphor. Of course, um, Jesus is referred to by the metaphor of a star in Scripture in a couple of places, in Peter and in Revelation. Here we have the guiding star, maybe the the author of the journey and the object of the journey, all wrapped up into one. Following the star, it's a wonderful image. It conveys the idea so evocatively of a journey towards truth, a journey inspired by the glorious creator of the universe itself. And they arrive at the house and their joy is inexpressible. They are overwhelmed. They enter in and they behold the Christ child, together with with Mary. Jesus is mentioned first. He is the object of their heart's desire. And then they do what the Jews, what the chief priests, what Herod were all incapable of doing. They bow down and worship him. They do so from their hearts with exceeding joy. This is not just a diplomatic courtesy call. Actually, I don't like the, um, the NRSV translation of homage. The, the other um, versions use worship, lie down, bow down and worship, and that's actually what's going on here. Um, this is adoration. Scripture tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And these travellers from this foreign land submit themselves to the king of the universe, bowing before him, And they do this, I think, symbolically as kind of a pledge on behalf of the many nations that will surely follow. Then gifts are given from their treasure chest and I think what they offer demonstrates quite remarkable um, theological insight and sophistication. The temple, of course, in Jerusalem is adorned with gold And gold is a fitting and proper gift for a king. Frankincense is burnt on the altar in the temple. And as the the incense is burnt, the smoke rises up to heaven, creating a bridge between heaven and earth, very appropriate for the true high priest. And then there's the myrrh. 
Myrrh is also burned in the temple, but it has another use, making it the most poignant of the three gifts, I think. Myrrh is a very precious spice, and it's used in anointing and embalming the dead. So here we see a link between Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. Reminds us of the kind of king we have, a servant king who will die for us. After he's taken down from the cross, Jesus' body will be anointed with aloes and myrrh and will be placed in the empty tomb. But I want to think a little more deeply at this point about these gifts collectively as a group. A long time ago, the first temple was looted and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar uh, from the Babylonians. And the Jewish people were taken into captivity and the treasures from the temple were taken back to Babylon. And there are various prophecies about the temple being rebuilt and its treasures one day being restored and indeed some gold and silver items uh, were returned um, in Ezra's time. You can read about that in Ezra. But other prophecies seem to indicate that there was more to be done. In the Gospel reading today, treasure chests are brought probably all the way from Babylon and gifts are taken out and they are laid at the feet of Jesus. This looks a lot like temple treasures being returned. Or at the very least like a new kind of temple being dedicated. The treasures presented are gold and frankincense and myrrh, all items of great value found in the temple and I wonder whether there is a message here. Are the Magi saying, here is your new temple? Here is... Here in the person of the Christ child is a new temple for you. Our understanding is that Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, heaven and earth meet for our sake. Jesus will elsewhere declare himself to be our new temple. A temple raised up in his own body. And these carefully chosen gifts presented at his birth seem to acknowledge this role in a special way. Now when it's time to return home, the Magi avoid going back to Jerusalem as Herod had instructed them. Um, Reactions to Jesus can be polarising. They were polarising then, they're polarising now. (laughs) And uh, if the Magi are at one end of the pole, Herod's at the other (laughs) Uh, While the Magi are giving themselves to Jesus with heartfelt adoration and worship, Herod is plotting infanticide (laughs) and God intervenes and the Magi are warned in a dream to take another route back home. And so their journey ends or perhaps it begins in a new way after their encounter. We don't know. I wonder what the journey of the Magi says to us today. There are so many possibilities that this story touches upon. There is the grace of God to all people, not just the people of Israel, but to all people, Gentiles too. There is the marvellous creativity of God in reaching out and reaching down. And there is the exhilarating reward of true revelation for those who seek the truth. There's an understanding that somehow God can transcend culture and context and reach open, ha- open hearts. And there's the sobering truth 
that those who are closest to finding Jesus are often those from the outside rather than those from within. And then there's the contrast between the joy and the true satisfaction of holy adoration when it's compared with the anxiety and the insecurity of attachment to power. So there is presented for us a new kind of king, one who will reign as a servant, even unto death. A new temple is consecrated with gifts from afar. A new temple that is unshakable, anchored in the holy union of God and man in the perfect bond of love. If there's any story in the New Testament that fills us with wonder, it's got to be this one. (laughs) When we journey towards Jesus, we will find him and he will change us. Let us fall down before him, lost in wonder and in praise, treasuring him with the sacrifices of our lives. Amen.